Welcome to the InsideCarolina.com podcast. It is game week. That means this is the game plan. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. I'm joined by Greg Barnes and Jason Staples. Like I said before, this is the Game Plan Podcast. This is the first Game Plan Podcast of the 2021 season. We've had a lot of fun doing these over the years, uh, and we have nailed it over the years. Well, excuse me, they have nailed it. I have hosted them over the years. 2021 Carolina hype train is, is about as high as it can get. Of course, we're sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt, johnnytshirt.com, 10% off if you're a premium subscriber. If you're not a premium subscriber, I, I don't know what to tell you at this point. You cannot not be a premium subscriber for Inside Carolina if you're a Carolina fan. I just don't buy it. Anyway, Virginia Tech, 6 o'clock, Lane Stadium. I think 6-11 officially after the Sandman enters. Greg, I'm going to come to you first on this. Uh, we'll, we'll get down to the nuts and bolts shortly, but this is a game that is sort of two ships in the night passing one going one way the other seemingly going the other uh, I think it's just a huge ball game for both programs yeah and uh, you know Virginia Tech for for so long really ever since they joined the ACC and of course with the Big East prior to that uh, was kind of this dominant program where they relied on Beamer ball uh, you had Bud Foster one of the, the top defensive coordinators in the country uh, and so even though the offense was a little bit up and down throughout that period when you've got two phases of the game that are that good, you can be very good and win a lot of games, and they did. Uh, but, you know, as Frank Beamer kind of got along in his career, uh, some of the, those advantages kind of went away. And I think a lot of it was recruiting, but a lot, a lot of different things in play. Um, and Virginia Tech just has not been that same program. And Justin Fuente came in, won a lot of games his first two years, and everybody thought, okay, well, you know, this guy's is going to step right in where, where Frank was. In the last several years, uh, it, it's been a struggle. They, they've had losing seasons to the last three years. Uh, he's had a lot of turnover. I think they've had 45 guys enter the transfer portal the last three years. And that's just a crazy number. Uh, the 2020 recruiting class, I think, was ranked 76 nationally, 14th in the ACC. And they just recently lost the two best players out of that class. I think the only four-star out of that class is gone. Um, so things are not going in the right direction to the point where athletic director Whip Babcock had to hold a press conference last December, the day before signing day, to say, hey, I know the buyout went down, uh, but we're going to keep Puente. A lot of things go into that. But you never like to see an athletic director have to come out and defend his decision to keep his coach, right? Meanwhile, Mac Brown is doing what Mac Brown does, and he's talking up the Orange Bowl, and he's signing another top 15 class. And it really was a strange period of Virginia Tech appears to be going in the wrong direction, and there's evidence to support that. North Carolina is doing the exact opposite. And Mac Brown has this program you, where they'd won five games in two years. Three years later, they're top 10. Um. Now, Fuente said all the right things this offseason. He's really kind of pumped up his team. Hey, we're past all that. We got guys back. We're healthy now. Uh, we've got COVID under control. Where Mac is kind of doing like, 
all right, we've got, we've heard all the hype. Trust me, we've heard it all. We need to settle down. We need to live up to that hype. We need to stop talking and actually produce. And so it creates this interesting dynamic on Friday night of, okay, are the Virginia Tech players going to come out and try to make a statement for their head coach? Are they completely behind him? And if, if so, that changes the complexion of this game. And then what about North Carolina? Because Carolina's coming in, a top 10 team for this, you know, in the preseason for the first time since 1997. Big stage in front of a packed crowd at Lane Stadium. Uh, Mac Brown said earlier this week, that's not the type of opener that you would like to have. You would like to have an easy game uh, to get a lot of guys work, to kind of work out some kinks. You don't have that. And so there's a lot of different elements here that I, that I find fascinating. Uh, but I think all of us can agree it's, it's exciting for this to finally be here. We actually get to see, you know, can North Carolina live up to this hype? And uh, we'll know very soon this year. We don't have to wait you know, through some FCS opponents. We're, we're going to know by Friday night how good this team can be. Jason, when you look at the the first game, Mac's not a fan of opening up big, but I kind of like it. And I like it for a team like North Carolina that, uh, let's be honest, uh, Florida State last year, Florida State has some talent, but Carolina um, was feeling it a little too much and got punched early and ended up losing that game. Here you have an entire offseason to look forward to playing Virginia Tech. Hated rival. I like the idea of playing cupcakes early to get some kinks out, but also – for a team in this position, I like the opportunity for them to have to go out and make a statement from day one. What's your take in that area? <laughs> well, the thing about, about the coaching side of things is coaches like to have as little that is outside their control as possible. You want to have as few unknowns as you can have. That's what coaching is really that's, – that's the obsession of every coach. And, you know, Nick Saban in particular, you know, the, the, the whole obsession of Saban is making sure that every possible scenario has been, war, has been wargamed on the Thursday, Friday night uh, before, the, uh, before the game. They, I mean, it's all about knowing everything that can happen and having a plan for it thing about openers is you can't do that. <laughs> There's a lot of unknowns in openers. You haven't had a chance to see their current roster actually play together. You haven't had a chance. If there's any coaching changes, you haven't had a chance to see some of that. You've got new players in, in new spots on, on your own team, and you're not sure how that guy's going to handle live bullets for the first time. I mean, is, are, are you going to have – urine running down the leg or is this guy you know going to come out and, and play like a veteran right away I mean how how's that going to go and all of those things are unknowns when you come into that first game and so coaches in general would prefer to have a, a preseason right you know this is why the NFL does what they do they, they have a preseason they're they're minimizing the number of unknowns going into a season by the time you get to week one in the NFL you know what 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 each team looks like You've got a good sense of, okay, this guy's going to look this way. This, this is how these pieces are going to fit together. And that's why you, you, you like to open up with a cupcake. So as a coach, I think my preference would be a cupcake week one and then, you know, week two have your, your big-time game. So you can kind of get the kinks out in live stuff. Now, as a fan, oh, those week one games, those are the most fun because those actually have the most unknowns, right? I mean – Who's not looking forward to Clemson, Georgia this weekend as well, right? I mean, 
those are two teams that everybody knows they're going to be good, but it's the first year post L for the Clemson, for, for Clemson. It's the, you know, you've got some other unknowns on the Georgia side. Like how good are they really going to be? Like, there's all these things. It's intrigue. It's fun. But like I said, for coaches, that's exactly what makes it a nightmare. So if, you know, if you're Mac Brown, you're losing a little extra sleep playing Virginia tech on a, on a, you know, opening weekend Friday night. I'm looking forward to a game in Raleigh to see a, a former North Carolina backup quarterback play. And uh, Greg, since you okay. called me out last night, I play homage to Cade Fortin with the, uh, with the wear tonight. Uh, let me ask you this, Greg, and it's probably a discussion for the end of the podcast. Um, but Mac talked a lot about it's time to go play. It's time to do it. You know, it's, it's first game, 10 can turn into 25 in a hurry, all that kind of stuff. But how much win or lose does a team realistically know after one game? I think it's a good question. Um, I like the shirt, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think it's different if you've got a lot of returning starters versus not. Mess with the bulls, man. That's mess with the bull. Get some horns. Uh, Wolfpack like going to find out. I, I like it. Um, <laughs> I think with this team having so much back and 21 or 22 starters from that orange bowl game. Yes. You, you lost some, some key skill position players. You've lost Chas Uh, but you know, what Eugene Asante and Josh Downs getting the run they did in the orange bowl. Those guys have played like starters ever since the spring. Um, and I think, because of that, because there's so many guys in the two deep that are back, they have a pretty good idea of who they are. Um, and I think that Miami game carries over just in terms of confidence. And, uh, you know, yes, they lost to A&M by 14, but they were in that game. And just knowing that they played at the, I mean, the highest level of the sport and they played well, uh, that carries over. And so I don't think there's really any question for this team about how good they are. There, there may be a question of, okay, we think we're here. Can we really get to this next level? And I don't think they'll find that out on Friday. I, I think that's a season-long thing. But I don't think they're coming into this game saying, okay, well, we closed strong last year. Can we get back to there? I think they're there and they're past that. They, they believe they're a top-10 team. Whereas if you have a team you know, where you've only got 10 guys back and you've got a new starting quarterback, you're not going to know who you are for a long time. And so North Carolina's in good shape there. Yeah, Mac talked about, um, you know, North Carolina programs here to stay regardless. Jason, to Greg's point there, you know, they know where they are. The culture is changing. We're in year three. We're entering year three under Mac Brown. Where's the culture realistically? We're, we're, if we're on a scale, if we're on a ladder and the bottom's one and 10 is your ideal culture, I'm not talking about Alabama level elite, but the culture where is Carolina on that scale in your mind? I mean, it's hard to know for sure until you're inside those walls and you're, you're actually in meeting rooms and you get to see you, you, you hear coaches talk about, you got to look guys in the eyes to know certain things. So, and that's true in terms of culture, you, you, you get to really get a sense of culture when you're embedded with those, with those things. So this is, this is a guess based on what I see in here. But I would say they're probably around a, an eight. I mean, I think they're, I, I think if you ask Mac Brown that question, he'd probably put it in that range as well, that 
that the culture is pretty close to where he wants it, that this team has bought in that, you know, he's not having to weed out bad apples at this point that are, that are, that are pulling in the opposite direction. Cause so much of team culture is just about making sure you have everybody pulling in the same direction, right? You have a vision for this is who we're going to be. This is how we're going to work. This is how we're going to go about doing things. And everybody basically does, does that and does that to the best of their ability. That's great culture. (laughs) And when it's, when you have, a few guys that are like, man, coach says this, but I don't know, like such and such keeps saying, or, you know, that's just not the way I like to do it. Now you've got problems or, you know, yeah, you know, we're doing, you know, they wanted me to do this in the off season, but I kind of like my own guy, you know, my, at my high school. And I, I like to go back there and work out that that's where you start to see cracks in the culture. And I, I haven't seen any, any real evidence of that from this team. And I think, again, going into year three, that's when you expect a coach's culture to have really taken hold. Because at that point, you've basically flipped the roster. I mean, this roster, I don't know the exact number of players who came in under, under uh, Fedora, you know, percentage wise, but it's less than a quarter, I think. So, you know, you're basically looking at 70, you know, 70 plus percent of your own guys of guys that you recruited, that you identified, that, that you're convinced when you brought them in that they were going to buy into what you were, you were selling. And the guys that are still left that haven't transferred out are guys that, yeah, they were recruited by the other staff, but they bought in or they wouldn't still be here. And so by that point, by year three, you've got a good sense of where the culture is going to be under a coach. And I think that's basically where they're at. I think, I think there's, there's reason to, be, to, to really feel like things are as they should be. Yeah. And Tommy, I would say this too. Um, in 2014, at the end of that year, uh, when I was up in Detroit, it was not a good locker room scene. <laughs> and I mean, the players were openly talking about it, you know, with us uh, reporters kind of in the, in the post game setting. And you're like, uh Oh, this could go South very quickly. And yet they go in 2015, they lose the opener to South Carolina. And you're thinking, man, we're, we're going to go through another year of this. The Monday after that game, I'm on the fifth floor after interviews. And Elijah Hood and Switzer and a couple of guys are sitting around there. And they're all ticked off that they lost. And they're talking about, we're getting ready to go and run. We're, we're sick of this. We've moved past this. This team's too good to lose those kind of games. And it wasn't guys trying to convince themselves of that. Those guys believed it. And that, you know, that was one of the most incredible coaching jobs I've seen is what Larry Fedora did that offseason. And that's when he brought them all together and everybody aired their grievances and they had those big dialogues. And it sounded kind of corny, but it worked. Um, and that turnaround was dramatic. It established trust. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you talk about this team, you've got to have good leadership. And Marquise Williams was a great leader. Uh, Ryan Switzer was a great leader on that 2015 team. Uh, Taylor Vipolis was a great leader on that 2015 team. Um, so I, I think it's a situation when you have a guy like Jeremiah Gimmel, who you, Eugene Asante is saying, it's an honor to play beside this guy. Cedric Gray saying, yeah, I went over to his house to play video games. And then in the middle of playing video games, Jeremiah's like, hey, let's stop for a second. Let me quiz you on these plays. Make sure you understand the scheme. And while they're doing talks during training camp, 
all the guys are getting up talking about themselves and talking about how they look up to Jeremiah. You've also got Brian Anderson. You've got Sam Howe, got some of those offensive linemen. So they have a legitimate core group of guys here that have been around the block, that understand what needs to happen. They've played on some bad teams, some average teams. Um, and, and that's a key part of it is having guys like that on the field and in the locker room that you can trust. So the coaching staff has done their job in building those leaders. And now it's the time for those leaders to kind of take it to the team. I think we're seeing that. Mm-hmm. And that's the big, big part of this. Yeah. And I'll, I'm going to add a couple of things to that too. The, the, the other thing is when you see, uh, when you see te- the, the only reason that I put them down at an eight is when you see teams like this that are growing that culture, the one thing that's missing is knowing how to win consistently and win the big games. That's the thing that differentiates your Alabama that has otherwise everybody's pulling in the same direction, working hard, all of those things. The difference is Alabama has been in the biggest of big games and three quarters of their roster has won those games. They've made the putt with the masters on the line. They know what that feels like. They know not only can I do this, but I've done it. And then the, when, when, when the freshmen come in, and when the, when the young guys come in, there's that additional been there, done that aspect that this team doesn't have yet. And that's the one thing that's missing. That, in large measure, is what this season is about getting for the rest of the roster. And that, that can be, really be Sam Howell's legacy and Jeremiah Gemmel's legacy is bringing this team to a point where everybody after them knows what it feels like to win big and to win at a high level, win big games. And once you've got that in a program, that actually builds that belief and that trust within the program, not only with the coaches, but with the other players. And, you know, this, again, I I got to see that up close (laughs) down in Tallahassee, you know, when I got down there under coach Bowden in terms of that kind of culture. And, you know, Mac, Mac and I've talked about this. Mac has, has modeled his career and the way he coaches so much off of Bobby Bowden. And, you know, and, and I've told Mac, he reminds me of coach Bout. And, you know, he, he was, he's like, well, I've, you know, I've tried, I've, that's, that's been who I've modeled myself after in a lot of ways. He's got a lot of the same values as that group and the, the same approach to culture. And what you see is players leading players and holding players accountable in a way where everybody's pulling in the same direction. And one other story, and again, this is about my alma mater in, in this regard, but you go to, to Florida State in 2013, they were a team that didn't have that experience yet of having won the big, you know, the biggest of the big yet. And that was something, you know, the 2012 team, they lost two games. They fell just short of what they, what they wanted. They went and they ended up winning the Orange Bowl. But it was a disappointment because they felt that team had a chance to contend for a title. And then E.J. Manuel goes out, Jameis Winston comes in, in in 2013, and they feel like they got a shot. But the hard part is what happens after you win a really big one. Can you sustain that success culturally? And I remember asking after they beat Clemson, I was on, I was there covering that game. And I asked them point blank. I was like, you know, are you guys, I asked the, 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 some folks uh, who were, you know, uh, connected to the coaching staff on the coaching staff, you guys going to be able to sustain after this? Cause you know, it's hard to, hard to sustain success. Are you going to be able to keep these guys from getting too high? And person I was talking to pointed over at Telvin Smith and, J- and LaMarcus Joyner and said, Telvin and LaMarcus won't let us lose. 
those two guys won't let us, they won't let it happen. Those guys won't let us lose. And there was no concern about culture, about like, oh, you just blew out, you know, top four team at home at their place. How are you going to handle this the rest of the way? It was like, no, those guys, they ain't going to let anybody get high on this. And I think Carolina's got a few of those guys. So, and again, I, I'm not inside, but every impression I have is that there is that sense of accountability that once you get there, all that's necessary is to get that win at Clemson or to get that big win to say, not only do we believe that we can be here, now we've been there. And that's, that's really the step that's necessary to move from eight to a, you know, to a 10. That is uh, listening to you, you sort of capped off what I was thinking. I'm thinking you got to have a coach that knows what he's doing. Check with Mac. You got to have uh, players that can lead. Check. You got to have players that can lead, but also can play because yeah, nobody's... That's, the, that's the bigger one. There are lots of players that can lead, but, but if they can't play, they ain't going to get followed. Exactly. And, and check with that. You got Sam Howell, you got Gimmel, especially, and some other guys. Because I could have led, but I couldn't play. Yeah, I could yell at people all day and <laughs> say, follow me, follow me. And then you turn around and nobody's there. But I was a leader. I just couldn't play. <laughs> I, I could lead the cheering squad, you know, the, the crew in the, in the stands. But Carolina has checked all those boxes, like you said, Jason, except for doing it and that's what 2021 is all about and that's what starts friday night in blacksburg we're going to talk about that after the break i'm going to talk about johnny t-shirt first mm. Woo! jason's by far the most en enthusiastic ad reader here johnny t-shirt johnny t-shirt.com they're great on franklin street was in there the other day visiting my child at carolina they've got all the great deals they got some great swag in there I saw they had the new shoes, a lot of sneakerheads out there. Check out the new uh, Pegasus, I think. Uh, but Johnny T-shirt looks after Inside Carolina Premium subscribers. If you do that, you get that 10% off, like I mentioned earlier. You're going to get Greg Barnes's information. You're going to get Jason Staples' information. But you got to be a premium subscriber to get all that recruiting stuff, you know, and all that fancy stuff. And, and to see Jason's – how many uh, reviews did you do or evaluations? 38. 38. <laughs> evaluations on the inside Carolina premium message board. You haven't seen that if you're not a premium subscriber, a lot of work involved with that too. Yeah, exactly. Impre what, impressive stuff. It, it was not just, uh, this guy's a six, that's a seven. Maybe that's a four. Jason nailed it on 38 different ones. And it ranges from Sam Howell to Austin Richards to Caleb Hood guys that hadn't even played a snap yet for North Carolina so it's a wide-ranging thing that's what you get as an inside Carolina premium subscriber let the national guys come in here pay a couple more bills we'll be right back insidecarolina.com the game plan podcast episode one of the game plan in 2021 we'll be right back introducing the two-way v4 where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance with fuel cell each step feels explosive delivering unparalleled energy return paired with fresh foam experience maximum comfort throughout the game its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition the two-way v4 gives you the tools to play at a high level learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, boys, we're back. InsideCarolina.com Game Plan Podcast. Johnny T-Shirt is the sponsor. Jason Staples is the expert. Greg Barnes is the expert slash beat writer. I'm just the host running the ship, driving the train. Greg, Carolina kickoffs at 6-11. Let's start from the very beginning. Carolina wins the toss. What did they do and why? Uh, well, Mac Brown has laid that out quite well in his first two seasons. Uh, he is going to defer. Uh, he, he wants that extra guaranteed possession to start the second half. Um, and he's a big, big proponent, big fan of the idea of the, the middle eight, the final four minutes, the second quarter, the first four minutes, the third quarter. And you can guarantee yourself a possession there if you defer. So uh, they will certainly do that if, if they win the toss. And, uh, you know, I think this year especially, the, the defense is chomping at the bit. And so I think they're more than happy to uh, – send the defense out and let them see what they can do in that first possession. Jason, if you're, if you could choose, who do you want on the field first? Um, if it were last year's offense, it's an easy choice. Go but defense. this year, you still go defense oh, even yeah. last year, but this oh, yeah. year you're going defense. Tell well, me I'm why defense both year, both years, partly because I want the most nervous part of a game and the most nervous part of a first game of the season is that first drive. Let your defense go out there and get there and, and, and basically knock themselves into the game a little bit. And then let your offense go out there after a punt or after a touchdown. I mean, at that point, you know, you, there, there's a little bit of the newness of the game that's worn off for that second drive. So I, 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 I think it's a bit of an advantage to be the second to get the ball. And then if, you, if you're deferring and you get the ball to start the second half, the other thing that that opens up is you can potentially try to play for a two-for-one where you might get one more possession in the game than the opposing team. So to me, the strategic, the, the, the right answer is pretty much always to defer so that you get the ball in the second half. And, and, it went, and, and so you can, you can come right out of the gate in the second half with your, with your adjustments and things that you put in place at the half, uh, at the halftime, uh, break. And you can get, let your defense get after it on, uh, when the, when the other, when the opposing offense is perhaps at their most nervous at their, you know, if they've got some young players, that's when they're going to be most jacked up and most pumped up. Uh, and that's when you want, that's when you're, you're most likely to have a mistake. So I want my defense out there and, you know, see if they can if they can get a stop and if you can get a stop then your offense is in great shape to to drive the field and put you in, in good position station take it's a fun thread on the message board greg and i'll and i'll start with the question and then we can get into what to expect from carolina it's like what's what's the first play from carolina going to be of the 2021 season I, it's got to be a rpo slant the downs or somebody like that you you posted on that thread as well inside carolina premium subscribers have been all over it um i'd be interested to look at the first play of every game under phil longo but if it's not rpo of some type i'd be shocked but anyway how does carolina start on offense what does longo want to do early in this ball game well i think one one thing to remember is this year because they don't have javante and, and michael carter uh, they are going to do a little bit more conventional running 
So that, that may play a factor on the first run. It may be kind of a more basic run play that, that we haven't seen so much the last two years. Regardless, I think either the first or second play is going to be a shot down the field. Uh, this is Sam House coming out party for Heisman Trophy run. And uh, Justin Fuente is 4-17 and 17 at Virginia Tech when the opponent scores first. And if you can get Virginia Tech behind – kind of feeling bad about themselves after what we talked about earlier with how the offseason's gone, how last year went. Uh, that's what you want to do. What's the easiest way to quiet Lane Stadium? Score early. And so, yes, North Carolina's capable of marching down the field uh, like they, they did so often last year. But I'm fully expecting on that first or second down for, for Sam Howe to fire a shot down the field, probably to Emory Simmons, uh, but – I mean, when you got Downs and Antoine Green out there as well, you've got options. But uh, I, I would be shocked if there's, there's not a blast set that possibly can be heard across the uh, national college football landscape. Jason. I think I know what I would call. So if you watch last year's game, Virginia Tech could not stop the gap running game from Carolina. I mean, they didn't get they didn't get a hand on Carolina's running backs, you know, within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage a good bit of the time. So you're running power and counter on those and they couldn't stop it. So if you're the if you're the Virginia Tech defensive coordinator coming off of that, what are you going to be drilling your defense on coming into this game? Probably more than anything else. What are they going to have seen in camp? cut up after cut up of guys missing assignments, being out of gaps and so on against power or counter. Stop the run. Stop the counter. You got to stop the power. You got to stop this. So you know what I'm doing first play? I'm running, I'm running, uh, I'm running power action with a little half roll and throwing and, and trying to throw a little post route over the top. Bring that safety down to run the alley, throw it right over his head and see if I can run away from him and get a cheap one right away. Because I know that they will have been looking at that tape, at what we did to them last year. So if that, that's what they're worried about, then you know what we're going to do this year? We're going to counterpunch knowing that those players are going to sell out for that in the first drive because they want to show that, they, that they're doing it different. Well, you know what? That's when you counterpunch. It's like in boxing. Well, he got me with the right hook the last time, so I'm going to make sure I keep that up. So faint, faint that right hook, go to the body. You know? you, you're going to find ways to counter on these things. That's what, that's what I would do. I would love to see that sort of thing right up front. And then after that, you know, if, if it doesn't hit, then you run the ball traditionally. And then if it does, and then if, if you, you know, have a third and let's say six or so at that point, that's when you put Chandler out and you run five wide and you see how that's going to, how that's going to play out. You're getting three different looks there at that stage. Uh, but I like the idea of opening with something that, that counter punches right at, sort of what they're going to have prepped on most, most heavily given how the game shaped up last year. All right. Just so we're clear, cause we gotta, we gotta spice it up. Greg, you've got a traditional run and play and then a deep shot. Yep. Jason's got a deep shot off of play action right out the gate. I've and, got and specifically a gap run play action. So either pow power or counter play action to over the top, over to safety. I've got an RPO slant to downs. Those are the three options. We'll see who pulls it off. Greg. Uh, if it's an RPO, then how would you know it's a slant to downs? Because they do it all the time. Right. But if it's an RPO, it could look like a traditional running play if, they, if the look is to hand it off. Don't ask me those complicated questions. <laughs> it's going to so be. 
You're just saying because he's going to throw a slant to downs, but he's going to you know. pull the belly and he's going to throw it. Okay. Downs. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. And it's going to get eight to 10 yards. First play of the game, Greg, you mentioned something and, and we both did, or you guys both did. Does Carolina's offense turn more traditional? Um, I think those were your words this year. Um, with the replacement of, of Javante and Michael Carter. How, how does that work in your eyes, especially on Friday night, but also throughout the season? Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting dynamic that may or may not transpire. It really depends on what they like about Ty Chandler and, and some of these other running backs they've got. Uh, but like Jason, I went back and watched the Virginia Tech game, and um, the offensive line looked good. I mean, the whole offense looked good. But <laughs> what – what Williams and Carter did and what Daz Newsom did, I mean, those guys were elite. Um, North Carolina is, I think, second touchdown. Uh, first and 10 at the 19. Javante should have been tackled at the 18. An average power five running back would have gone down after he got through that hole. And he just bounced off a guy and ran in the end zone. Um, and it's just kind of phenomenal. And North Carolina really was able to do some different things with those guys unconventionally uh, just because they were so talented. And, you know, some of the coaches have talked about this offseason. When you lose that element of just elite playmaking ability from your running back group, you maybe have to go a little bit more conventional. Um, and, you know, I'm not talking I formation kind of stuff, but, but more just kind of normal run plays, uh, more inside zones, those kind of things to make it, where you can utilize the offensive line a little bit more. Um, you know, Mac has already talked about how he wants to be able to run when he wants to run the ball. He doesn't want to have these plays where it's maybe third and two and Sam has a decision to make with the RPO. It's, hey, third and two, we've got a big offensive line. Let's pick up the two yards running the ball. Let's prove that we don't care what you call defensively, we're getting these two yards. And so I think it's kind of a, a little bit of a shift mentally of, of putting the emphasis more on that offensive line to allow those backs behind them to kind of come along. Um, how exactly that looks like, I don't know. Maybe Jason has some ideas for how that could, could change. I don't think we're talking about any you know, dramatic shifts, but I, I think it, it goes from relying so much on the playmaking ability of Carter and Williams to utilizing those guys up front a little bit more. Yeah, Jason, I'll let you take it there. I mean, you know, folks want to say that certain offenses are plug and play. And, you know, you can stick some – like Spencer Rattler at, at Oklahoma. They've had quarterbacks that can play and put up big numbers. He's just another one of those guys. How are Carter and Williams different than maybe Chandler is not necessarily a plug-and-play, but they've got to do something different? Well, I mean, running backs all have certain things that they do better than others. I mean, some of it's just a feel issue. I mean, some guys are better zone runners. Other guys are better gap runners. And then you have Javante Williams, um, who can, you know, basically run whatever you want him to run. Uh, so there's some of that. I mean, some guys are, are, you know, better running on the edge. Some guys are a little more comfortable on the inside. So you have to know what your, what your guy is best at. And, you know, what skill set he brings to the table in terms of not just physical tools, but vision and, and feel and all those things. So by and large, I mean, inside zone is inside zone. Outside zone is outside zone. Power and counter, power and counter. I mean, that's what you're going to run. But 
at the same time, how often you call specific things with a given back may change. And what personnel groups you do it out of. Maybe you want to do it more out of 11, you know, where you've got one back, one, you know, tight end lined up at the H because a guy likes the split zone. He just has a feel for split zone a little bit better. Another guy might have a little bit better feel when, when you get the H out of there. It just depends. And you, 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 you figure out what works best for your personnel and you call, try to call that more often. Um, I don't think that it's going to be that big of a difference in terms of Chandler and Hood and the rest in terms of what they're, what they're best suited for. I mean, they've recruited for this offense and the guys that they have, you know, Chandler, Hood, Jones, you know, first three guys on the depth chart there, all three guys really can run all the things that they want to run like they want to run them. Uh, I don't think Chandler has the vision that, you know, somebody like Javante had, but I mean, that's not really, I mean, you're not going to expect very many people to have Javante's vision, but, um, and, and you know, he, he isn't quite as elusive, but he does have home run speed. He's faster, I think, than both, uh, not only Williams, but Carter in the straight line. So maybe you, you get him, you try to get him in situations where, you know, maybe you're trying to, to set him up for more straight line stuff. And you do that by formation. You do that by, you know, a, a few, a few other things to, to determine where the most likely unblocked guy is going to come from. Like, okay, well, you know, this is, this is where he's better situated to do. And, you know, I know that can be overthinking at a certain point, but it's the sort of thing that on a self scout you do. And you do a lot of that in the off season and you say, okay, what, what formations, what personnel work best for, you know, these guys when they're on the field. Uh, but I think by and large Longo's approach is this is how we, how we're going to do it. I'm going to call fast and I'm not going to really worry about it. So all that said, you can take that kind of overthink approach, or you can, you know, basically say, we're going to call power and we're going to call power out of 11 with a sniffer. And that's that you better get good at it. And I think that tends to be Longo's approach and they just drill it until you're good at it. Uh, the one big difference that I think we're going to see this year is Chandler is such a good receiver. He's a better receiver, uh, you know, for the position than they've had in terms of being able to split out wide and do some things out there and run routes and, and catch that way. Uh, so I think you're going to see more situations where you've got Chandler in the backfield and then motion to a slot situation and that sort of thing to get him the ball in space that way uh, out of a five wide or sometimes maybe line up with two backs and, and motion him out, that sort of thing. But I think you're going to see more five wide with Chandler on the field with Chandler in one of the slot positions uh, or split out wide, depending on what they do. If they're going to run a, a, a linebacker all the way out with him to the, to the outside spot, then you want that matchup because he's basically a wide receiver out there, the way he catches and runs routes. So that to me is the biggest difference you're going to see. Yep. And Greg, that's where I was going the passing game. And we're going to talk about the defense in a few minutes, but wanted to get your take on how does Sam Howe adjust not having a guy like De'Ami Brown that can just go. And maybe he does with Antoine Green. Maybe he does with these guys. Maybe they show it. But how does the offense adjust uh, because I, we, we've talked about downs. I mean, he's going to live underneath and he can get deep as well. But how does Longo adjust the approach given um, what they lost and what they have available? And I think Bo Corrales being out hurts. Uh, I think that's a big deal for this offense. But uh, where do you see the passing game on Friday night, but also looking ahead? Yeah, I think what really hurts this offense, Tommy, and you hit on it there, is not only are you losing Daz and Diami, 
But back in the spring, we had Bo Corrales and Choffrey Brown pegged as the outside wide receivers in game one. And both those guys are, have been banged up all camp. And uh, Bo's out for sure Friday night. And it sounds like Choffrey is not going to play much at all. Um, so that's like four losses of guys that, that produced last year for you. So I, I, that, that's significant. Having said that, Sam Howe is a Heisman Trophy candidate, um, arguably the best quarterback in the country, the best I've ever covered by far. Um, I, I don't think it's going to affect him whatsoever. I think he's going to do what he does, and he's going to make those guys look good. I mean, like Mac has said all summer long, uh, you know, nobody really knew anything about De'Ami Brown coming into 2019. Uh, when you got a really good quarterback who can get you the ball, you know, he's going to make you look good if you can catch the ball. And I think that's what we're going to see. I think Josh Downs is going to be good. We, we know that. Emory Simmons has really worked his tail off to gain more speed. Antoine Greens, that's kind of clicked for him mentally. So says Lonnie Galloway. Uh, Justin Olsen's really broken out. Uh, Stephen Gosnell has, has played well in training camp. So they've got guys that are talented. And it's just a matter of making sure those guys are put in the right positions and how we'll get them the ball. So I don't, I don't think the passing game changes very much. I mean, as Jason was saying with the run game, maybe you're not as comfortable calling some of those vertical routes as you would with Diami. But, you know, if, if, if you think your guys are close to as good as what Diami could do, then, then you let Sam throw that ball because you know he's going to put it in a position where they can catch it. And it's you, you don't want 50-50 balls anymore. I know you want them 80-20. Uh, Diami made them 80-20. And so you're hoping whoever follows behind him can do the same. So I don't think the passing aspect of it changes as much as all with, with Sam. Yeah, I mean, just catch the damn ball, right? Yep. He's going to put it in your hands 95% of the time. Just catch it when it's in your hands. Uh, we won't talk much more about that. Uh, it will be interesting to see um, who steps up at the position. Uh, I'd like it to be Antoine Green, to be honest with you. He, he's been there around. We've talked about him ad nauseum on this podcast. Long time. And, uh, you know, he's one of those guys, if you're going to do it, now it's time to do it. And, uh, you know, like I said, I think the offense misses Bo Corrales. I think well, Garrett Walston may can take that tight receiver um, role from Bo Corrales. They're not totally the same, but they're not totally different. Anyway. Hey, hang on. Let's, let's address that real quick. Uh, Jason, do you think the tight end sees a significant uh, – a significant – upgrade jump in terms of production this year targets i mean you got to get targets to have production yeah, right i think i think you're going to see you're going to see more targets and more production but it depends on what significant means fair but do you think i mean granted we're talking about a minuscule number of targets right uh, i mean 50 percent upgrade would be yeah i think i think you're looking at uh, so if I remember right, uh, he was at what, uh, something like 40 targets last year, somewhere um, around there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's not a bunch. I would expect him to get closer to 65 targets this year. Um, if not, you know, if not a little bit more, I mean, in the same number of games, you're looking at probably 65, so maybe 70 targets this year. So that's, that's pretty close to, a to, to, um, you know, it's he more had, than a 50% upgrade. He had 24 targets. 24 gosh. targets. So if, if you're looking at that, yeah, I'd double that. I think you're going to see double, uh, roughly double that basically this year for, for Walston. Um, that's significant. And, you know, and, and that's not counting a few additional that are going to go to the backup because, you know, they like, the, they, they like who they've got there. 
So, um, you know, that uh, I'd say I'd say double. But again, double 24 is not a ton. So 50, 60, 50, 60 targets. I mean, out of that, you wind up with about what? Probably 40 catches, which is a lot. But, um, you know, I'd say somewhere, you know, probably 50 targets. He, he caught 80% of his targets last year without a drop. That's solid. It'd be yeah. interesting. What was, uh, Greg, look up how many um, catches Pitts had for Florida. Uh, I mean. Oh, he was at like 80 or 90 catches. Yeah. The, so my question is about that, Jason, and I want to talk about the defense. We'll just run this one long like we did um, with the On the Beat Live the other night. Uh, he had uh, 80 targets in 2019 and, and 65 last year. He had 90. He said he had 100 catches in his career. Yeah, and you can think about that. That was 65 targets last year, and he didn't play the full season. Right. So, so who are the targets on? I mean, realistically, is it the offensive coordinator to get the tight end more involved? Uh, is it the quarterback to target him? Is it the tight end to get open? I mean, if you have progressions, if Sam Howell had progressions last year and has them this year, and the first progression's open, How does the tight end get involved more in this offense, Jason? Well, it's, some of it is, has to do with whether or not your outside receivers are dominant. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're throwing it to De'Ami Brown down the field a bunch, you're not going to target the tight end as much. But most of – most, so it's, it's, the answer is a little bit mixed. Most of the, the targets come down to the quarterback because you, you, know, you have a pass concept in, in mind. Let's say you're running snag which they, they call a decent amount or, you know, something like a, 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 a smash concept, you know, they'll, they'll run that some too, but let's say they run snack. Then you have a specific order of priority in terms of how you're going to read it. And you're going to throw to the guy that comes open and that's on the quarterback. It's not a matter of like the, the, the offensive coordinator sets it up and says, okay, we're going to call snag and you, you know, we want you to throw to the tight end. That rarely happens. It has to do with, you know, what is the defense taking away and where does the quarterback feel most comfortable throwing it based on what the defense has taken away? So that's, that's the big part of it. Now, the, the place where it's a little bit of an exception to that is you can call screens. You can call certain little uh, RPO gadget type plays or, you know, uh, bellies, different things like that, that, you know, pop passes that are designed to go to one guy. And so in that case, you're actually specifically singling that guy out. So, you know, that's where you're going to see, okay, we're going to run a, a, a tight end screen. Well, quarterback's going to throw the tight throw to the tight end. So sometimes it is, it is on the coach, but it, unless it's that kind of play, it's, it's really the quarterback and as much the defense and who the defense chooses to take away as anything. And, you know, actually thinking about this, given what, what defense or what, uh, what Howell's going to have in terms of how often I think he's going to target downs, I might adjust my, if there was 24 to Walston last year, maybe, maybe closer to 40 this year than 50, because some of those extra extras that might've gone to Walston are going to go to downs. And part of the reason is if you're, if you're a coordinator, quarterback coach or a quarterback, you've got a choice. Do you throw it to the guy that is you got two guys that are roughly equally open or going to be equally open. And one guy runs a four, eight and the other guy runs a four, uh, you know, a four, four, who do you want to throw it to? I mean, that used to be the thing that coach Bowden used to say about, you know, uh, Florida state fans used to get on, get on 
the coaching staff down there about like, why don't we use a tight end more like Miami does this sort of thing? Why don't we throw it to the tight end? I mean, tight ends for whatever reason, are really big fan favorites. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but they tend to be. Um, and the answer was, would you rather me throw it to Ryan Sprague than Peter Warwick? <laughs> I mean, you got a choice. I mean, Sprager's a good player, but I mean, let's be honest. If you got those two guys, who are you going to throw it to? It's, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and Carter, it's, and, Carter and Javante have had 60 targets between the two of them. Last yeah, year. and that's where I think most of the tight end targets will come from. But I think Chandler's such a good receiver that he's going to take probably 40 himself. Let's talk about Carolina's defense. We, do we believe uh, right now on the Game Plan podcast, Greg, that the Carolina defense will be significantly better than last year? And you yeah. can justify it or you can justify it or quantify it for us. Greg, go first. Yes, it'll be significantly different. The, the strange thing, and I've had a lot of conversations on the board about this over the offseason. Um, actually, I had one today. It's ongoing. Um, we find it. Yeah. It's, uh, I think people think the defense last year was a lot better than it actually was. I agree with that. Um, so when you, when you view it from that standpoint, I mean, I think they were 113th nationally in points per possession allowed, uh, from 60 yards and in. that's not good. That's not good. Um, did they show glimpses? Did they show uh, once they put some young guys in late that they were going to play better? Did they have some good moments against Wake in the third quarter, against Notre Dame, against NM? Yes, they got better as the season went along. Um, they've got to make a significant stride, though, a significant jump if they want to really contend and challenge Clemson. So I think there's no doubt the defense is going to make a massive step forward. Uh, but just saying that doesn't mean I'm saying, okay, well, they're going to be top 15 in the country now. They're a long way from that in terms of where they came from. Uh, but now that they've got bodies, now that they have experience, they have talent, I think Jay Bateman's going to have a really good unit. It's just going to be a matter of determining how quickly he can get those guys to gel, how quickly those young guys come along to have a lot of talent so that maybe by some of those big games midseason, you can really rely on Javari Ritzy to come in and be a key player without you wondering whether or not he knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing. If you can get to that point by mid-October, now you're dealing. Now you're going to have a really good defense to close the year. Um, but it's, it's still a process. As somebody pointed out, if you look at the starting lineup, at least on paper, that North Carolina released on Monday, there's a lot of three-star guys on that starting lineup. And a lot of the four- and five-star guys are behind them. Why? Because they're all young. And so a year or two from now, this defense is going to be fantastic. Their ceiling grades, their potential grades are a lot higher than their current grades. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so expound on that, Jason. I mean, where does the significant – I mean, you did this number when we were talking. Where's the significant jump occur? I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to let you uh, lay it out for our folks. And what do we see on Friday night? that maybe uh, enlightens the Carolina fans as to how significant the jump can be? Well, there's, I think there's two places. First of all, who were the main, who were, who were the starting corners last year? Trick question, right? 
a 17 year old or 18 year old, whatever Tony was. Yeah. But he only started at the end of the year. That's right. Yeah. Right. Day Day Holland because, started games. Yeah. You had Day Day Holland starting some, you had, you know, duck started at the beginning of the year and looked great and then was gone two games, two games. And then you had McMichael who was, you know, he was there. Uh, he, he was out there and then he wasn't out there. He got banged up too. And so, you know, they were, they were running through corners last year like crazy and they weren't able to get consistency there and they didn't have their best guys on the field together all year. And then Patrice Renee was out there and he was never a hundred percent. They had to move Don Chapman in practice to cornerback just to get him reps in case they needed him. Yeah. So, I mean, that right there is a big deal when you know, like, okay, look, we got three corners that are potentially all ACC caliber or in that range, you know, at, you know, two corners that are probably all ACC caliber and a third that's dang good. And then you got Day Day Hollins, who I think a lot of people don't realize how good he actually is. I think he's better than, than, than what a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of those outside that building think. So you got four corners that you feel okay about. And then who, who are the starting safeties last year? Right. Do you, do you feel better about the safety position this year? You know, with, uh, with, with Conley at safety you know, alongside, uh, alongside Trey Morrison and whoever else is going to rotate in there, you know, biggers. I think you feel pretty good about that going into the season. And there hasn't been the attrition that, that you've, that you've had, that you had last season, at least so far. So you feel great about that going in. And then the other place is obviously on the defensive line. And that, that killed them against Virginia tech two years ago. And last year, to some degree, they had trouble stopping them up front because they just didn't have the size and the, uh, they just didn't have the beef to basically handle Virginia tech's running game. And Virginia tech does a lot to put your linebackers in trouble. They put your linebackers in conflict. It's a lot of what, uh, what Fuente's offense is going to do. He's going to work that intermediate area and force your linebackers to cover and, and stop the run. And if your defensive line can take some of that pressure off, it makes things a lot easier. And they haven't had that the last couple of years. And I think their defensive line, they're at least going to be able to put enough big bodies out there that that will that will keep them from just being sitting ducks against stopping the run. So they'll at least be able to slow teams down a little bit against the run. Do I think they're going to be great against the run? You know, that they'll be, you know, watching uh, Auburn type, uh, you know, SE, you know, top sort of top quartile SEC defensive line against the run. No, they're not going to make that kind of jump this year, but they're not going to just get gashed play after play because guys are getting pancaked due to lack of size. So those two places that, that changes the defense and they're going to go from, you know, they were one thirteenth in that number that you, that you quoted Greg in terms of uh, drive, what uh, points per drive from the 60 yards in. Yep. That's bad. Right. That they were trying to go smoke and mirrors most of last year. This year, I would expect that to probably move into the fifties, which is that a great defense? No. I mean, your Alabama's and Clemson's of the world are, you know, top five there. But if you can go from 113 to say 50, that's a that's a big difference, and you're looking at you know winning a couple more games as a result. And I think that's that's basically the kind of improvement that I'd expect. Indeed, Greg. Let's talk specifically what happens on Friday night in Blacksburg. I, I think 
Um, we talked about this on the prediction pod, so I know our predictions here. <laughs> let's talk specifics, what happens, um, and then give me a prediction, Carolina and Virginia Tech. I, I think this is, and I say it all the time, and people give me hell about it, this is a, is a huge ball game for Carolina's football program. Is it the most important game of the season, Tommy? It is a must win. Greg. <laughs> <laughs> We're going there already. All right. <laughs> I like it, man. Tommy, the last two nights you have you have provided some gems, my man. You are, you are right undefeated. On brand. I don't know wins. if they're I don't know if they're gems or uh, you know like cold <laughs> coal in the stocking, but yeah. Just, I, I had a lot of pressure brand. last night. I had a lot of pressure last night, look, and I succumbed to the pressure. But I'll stand by twelve and zero. So a couple things about Virginia Tech. Um, I don't want to say this is playing devil's advocate, but I think it's I think it's important to to lay it out. They were really uh, just slaughtered last year by COVID. I mean, they had almost three-fourths of their team got it. Eight of their ten assistant coaches got it. Uh, Justin Hamilton, defensive coordinator, missed the first two games because he had it. Uh, Against North Carolina, they had 15 guys out due to COVID, including five defensive backs who were in the two deep. And when you have that many guys coming in and out through the the course of the season – it's hard to build chemistry and it's hard to kind of understand what you got. So as Jason just laid out for UNC, when you got so many guys injured, um, it's tough to kind of build chemistry and to kind of understand what everybody's roles are. And I think Virginia tech went through that a little bit last year. Um, and as we talked about in those fedora last two years, right. Where there's so many injuries that when Matt came in, where you had a lot of starters back, but you also had a lot of guys who had to play because nobody else could play. And so you had a lot of experience. Um, and so there was a pretty good foundation in terms of experience when Matt came in. And I think that same kind of thing will help Virginia Tech this year. They won't be as up and down as they were last year because of that. Um, yeah, I think it's a leg- legitimate concern uh, with Braxton Burmeister. Uh, everybody watched that game last year. And Tommy, as you mentioned earlier, Hooker really uh, – looked like the, the key guy at quarterback for them when he came in and really led that comeback. And uh, he looked like a better quarterback than Burmeister all year last year, although they really liked what Braxton did late. He, of course, won that Virginia game for him. A little trivia question for people. Uh, his dad played, played for Dick Crum. Yep, played at Carolina. He was a defensive yeah, back, that. wasn't he? Yes, he was. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah. Great trivia. We're going to build our own inside Carolina <laughs> trivial pursuit game. From from 84 to 86. That's that's impressive. Jason knew that. That's strong. Um, but I, I think kind of what what North Carolina will do with, with Braxton, um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But as Jason said, when you've got cornerbacks like North Carolina has, and they've got three guys that that'll probably be playing in the NFL before too long, uh, you can really put them on islands. And you can really bring the other guys up because Virginia Tech, you know, they re- returned some key pieces. Yes, they lose, they lost Herbert, but they re- returned four offensive linemen with starting experience, a couple of the other running backs they have back. Uh, and so I think what they'll do is you'll see Bateman really bring guys up, try to stop that run game, um, and really challenge Braxton and take shots down the field. And he didn't have a lot of success with that last year. And I think that's going to be a key component here because North Carolina is going to give him opportunities down the field. They're going to allow those cornerbacks to be in one-on-one situations, and he's going to have to make the plays. Now, he's got some good wide receivers, 
uh, guys that have played a lot. I mean, guys we were talking about earlier, um, who all we have here. Caleb Smith's the guy who's looked well, looked strong. Trey Turner, of course. Tavian Robinson scored against North Carolina last year. So they've got some talent to that position. Um, but what Virginia Tech, because Braxton can run, uh, what they did a lot late in the year that had success for him is they kind of rolled him out uh, so he can move the pocket and he could avoid some pressure. And that allowed him to kind of step into some throws and it worked for him. Um, so how, how Bateman kind of challenges that, I think will be a, a key part of UNC's defensive game plan here. Um, but I think it's really going to come down to, can Braxton make the throws down the field? And if he can, you know, it's going to be a, a really competitive game. If not, uh, I think North Carolina can really uh, build a big lead in this one and kind of run away with it. Virginia Tech returns five top receivers, and I'm going to go ahead and crash Jason's bubble. It is literally on first page of Virginia Tech's football notes that Burmeister's father played at Carolina. Is it, at least he read it. I, I actually haven't read it. See? That is okay. I will – I stand corrected. That was an epic – you win Trivial Pursuit for tonight. Uh, Jason, what happens here? Uh, you know, there's some concern there, and I'm not so sure that the hype – if Virginia Tech and Florida State did not happen – or excuse me, if Virginia and Florida State didn't happen last year, I'd be 100% this is going to be a butt kicking. But those games concern me. Is it valid? It's valid because the reason that you get those games is that your talent level and your experience talent level is not at the point where you can win with your B or C game. I mean, I know I've been on this. This has been this is we all have our kind of hobby horses or our, you know, our uh, uh, soapboxes. And this is one of mine that if you want to be a team that competes to go undefeated or, you know, to win all the games that you're favored in, you need to be favored by a lot <laughs> in those games on a regular basis. And you need to be playing against teams that don't have in your talent level, you know, they're not in your tier talent wise. And even though Virginia tech is going in the opposite direction of Carolina talent wise, and in terms of the direction of the program, Carolina's rising and Virginia tech's falling. And honestly, I think Virginia tech is one of the most overrated programs in the country in terms of the job quality. I think it's a hard place to win long-term. Uh, you know, I think they were able to build something in the big East that's going to be long-term harder, harder to sustain in the ACC because when you're competing with a brand like Carolina, when you visit Blacksburg and you visit Chapel Hill and you have an opportunity, you know, one brand versus the other, when you're recruiting and when that's the recruitment that you're dealing with, it's hard. You're going to have a hard time winning that brand versus brand. You're going to have to be better as a staff getting those guys on campus. So uh, in any case, even though they're going in opposite directions, they're kind of passing one another and they're still in the same tier as they're, as they're passing by. So Virginia Tech still has the talent to beat North Carolina. If Carolina comes out and plays their B game, they're going to lose this game. You know, if they, if they turn the ball over a couple times, they're probably going to lose this game. So, you know, this is where, yeah, there's a good reason to be nervous about this game. And there's good reason to expect that this game is going to be competitive because again, they've got, they're, they're in the same talent tier as Carolina. The reason that you feel more secure about it though is when it comes down to it, if I, if I said your life depends on the outcome of this game, choose your quarterback. 
and you've got Braxton Burmeister and you've got Sam Howell, which guy do you think, if it's a really close game down the stretch in the fourth quarter, is going is to make sure his team wins that game? That's what it boils down to me uh, when, you, when you have these kinds of games. And, and, and it's why teams that have elite quarterbacks win more games that are on the margins against teams that are, that are in their talent tier. Right. You, if you're Clemson and you're you know, kind of close to you're not even quite in the talent tier of Alabama, Alabama's in their own talent tier. But you're Clemson and you and you play Alabama and you have the elf at quarterback. That's your equalizer. Right. That guy changes that that, that guy changes the margins a little bit and like, OK, well, Bama doesn't play perfectly and Clemson plays at their best and they've got the elf. Well, geez. They're going to win that game. So that's where, you know, the, the kind of trump card that you put on the table is we got Sam Howell. <laughs> and that I think is going to come down. Going to, is, there are probably going to be a couple games this year where it comes down to that. And does Howell do what Howell does? Uh, I think in this game, Howell's going to come out and do what Howell does. The matchup that I really want to see, though, is I want to see whoever is covering Trey, Trey Turner that's the guy I'm going to be watching on defense pretty much all game because Turner's one of the best wide receivers in the country. He's an excellent NFL prospect at wide receiver and whoever has, whoever is covering him is going to have their hands full. And I'm curious to see what, what uh, Jay Bateman does in terms of coverage options there, whether or not he shows Turner a little bit more respect by, by helping out a little bit more over the top or whether he basically says, Nope, my corners are good enough. We might give up a play, but we're gonna we're gonna gain much more by not even worrying about it. That'll say a lot about sort of how Bateman feels about his guys, because that's a guy that you don't get to just put your put your guys any which way against him and feel like you're gonna be able to uh, to manage and and get by if you just single cover him unless you've got a dude. So that's going to tell me what Bateman really thinks. And if those guys are on an island against him and he doesn't go off for like three touchdowns, that speaks very, very well of what we can expect for the rest of the year if those guys stay healthy. So that's the, that's the key matchup for me is can they find a way to prevent Virginia Tech from getting some big plays in the passing game? Because they'll probably get a couple plays in the running game just by virtue of their scheme. They got a quarterback who's explosive in, uh, with his legs. They're going to they're going to cause some problems there. But if they can keep them from making big plays in the passing game and Greg, you said this, you know, can Burmeister locate and, and pick him apart downfield? If he does that, this game's going to be close and Carolina may lose it. But, you know, it also comes down to can Turner win those battles consistently on the outside. And if they can keep him from from winning those battles on the outside without forfeiting too much otherwise on coverage. I feel pretty good about this game if I'm Carolina. So that's, that's my view on it. All right. Real quick, Greg, give me a score. Oh, what I, what I say in the preseason prediction, I think, uh, 41, 27. I'll stick with that. 41, 27, uh, same score as Carolina and Oklahoma, same score as the orange bowl as well. Jason, I'm going to go with 30. Hmm. I'm going to go with 37, 28. 37-28, Carolina. I'm going to go 40-26, Carolina. Some weird bounces. You know, Jason, to your point, 
and I'll wrap the show this way. Carolina has never had a quarterback except for Sam Howe that you always knew that you had the best quarterback on the field every time you lined up. They've never uh, had it. Trubisky was pretty close on that. The only only one that I would say you weren't sure about that was when, when they played Clemson with uh, Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson, yeah. Yeah, and you, you felt like Deshaun was probably the better player there. But other than that, when they had Trubisky, he was the best quarterback on the field every other game. Because they didn't uh, – did they play uh, – they played – can't remember if they played uh, Louisville that year. Daniel Jones, man. They played Daniel Jones, didn't did they? they? Did the they... Louisville game was uh, the next year, 17. Yeah, it was the next year, yeah. So, with Trubisky, I don't think he was – I think he was the better quarterback on the field in every uh, regular season game. And you felt like that going in, that he was that. At least I did. Um, now – Last year, Howell would have been the best player, best quarterback on the field, and he was the best quarterback on the field in every game they played and would have been in every game except for Clemson. So similar situation. But this year, it would be he, – he might be the best, play, best quarterback in the conference. I, I think I like him a little bit better than I like the guy at Clemson. What's Bottom his line. nickname this year, Jason? What's DJ's nickname? <laughs> I don't know. Ungalay uh, is just uh, – Ungalay. I finally yeah. don't know how to say it. What is it, Greg? I don't know. So I, Jason came up with the elf. So I'm, oh, I'm, oh, okay, yeah, no. That, sorry, uh, yes, a nickname. Sorry. Yeah, I'll have to think of something for him. But yeah, um, we got time. But Louis. I just don't think I, I don't think he brings as much to the table as as uh, as Trevor did. So, you know, Sam in his third year, I think is probably the guy I would choose between the two. Uh, if 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 picking quarterbacks, you know, before the season for the ACC. So yeah, he's probably might be right Tommy that this is the first time at least in conference and looking at everybody that they actually have a chance to play prior to the uh to the bowl that he's the best best quarterback in every game yep you always want the most important player to be the best player that you got on the field I think Sam Howell does special things at Virginia Tech I said 40-26 everybody's got it to win it's been the first edition of the game plan podcast sponsored by Johnny T-shirt Johnny T-shirt.com on InsideCarolina.com. Greg Barnes will be in Chapel, or excuse me, will be in Blacksburg providing the coverage that only he can provide uh, pre and post game inside Carolina Live at Old East Tavern with Jason Staples. You're sitting in my chair. Uh, I'll keep Friday. it warm for you. You better keep it warm. I'm sure you'll uh, make me look bad, but it's all good. I know my role. This has been Inside Carolina. This has been the game plan, and we are out. Thanks, boys. Sunday after the equalizer. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. It's the season finale. Everyone's looking for something. Of Tracker. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. How you survive, you make quick, smart decisions and you never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. CBS season finale Sunday after the equalizer on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.